Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So here we are. I told you last week that we were going to finish 1 Timothy. And uh, it's not right for your pastor to lie, but I lied. Um, we're not going to be able to do that. Um, just, it was just too much, and so we're going to extend it one more week into next week. And one thing I want to share with you is that Jeff just read five verses there, and we are only going to cover one of those this morning. We're just going to cover the first one, but I had him read the whole thing because I wanted it in the context to get you an idea of, of kind of what, what's taking place here and what Paul is, is speaking to Timothy about. And, and so here, here's kind of what's happening. He's at the close of his letter, this first letter that we have from Paul to Timothy. And if you remember that Timothy is a, a young man that has been now kind of positioned at Ephesus. He's been traveling with Paul for several years, we think. And, and, and Paul has spent two years in Ephesus kind of building and structuring and, and starting a church there. And now Paul is not there and he's left Timothy there to complete the work, to continue to to shape and mold, um, direct, uh, counter-false teaching of the church. Um, and it's going to be a hard job. We believe Timothy's probably in his 20s somewhere. We don't know, maybe 30, but he's a very young man. And so Paul has given him lots of instructions and encouragement in the letter early on. He's told him that, Timothy, look, anybody be can saved. The, the blood and the, the grace of God has saved me. And he says that I am the worst of all sinners. And so he's encouraging Timothy not to give up. He tells Timothy there's going to be false teaching, there's going to be challenges, and you're going to have to confront those things, Timothy. And he tells him about setting up elders and the role of men and women and how the church should be structured. And he gets to this last part of the letter, and if you remember last week, he talks and he gives some warnings about those that are... um, Troublemakers in the church, more or less. They, they, they're pursuing a, a false righteousness, a, a way of having power in the church. Uh, they found it, that it's possibly a way for financial gain. We don't know all the details there. We don't know if they were somehow um, asking people to give so that they could get money and financially. Uh, they, obviously, there was a way of getting prestige in the church when you were a teacher. And yet, Paul says that these people are really just sowing false teaching and envy and deceit. Um, and that many of them just have a desire to be rich. And so Paul admonishes them and, and tells Timothy that last week. And so here, as we get into the kind of the mid part of this chapter 6, um, his words to Timothy now turn very, to a very personal tone. He's been talking about other people, but now he's very pointed and, and very direct towards Timothy. Now, again, remember who Timothy is. This is a man that he considered his son almost, his spiritual grandson. And so he has a deep affection for Timothy. And, and Timothy has been ordained by the elders to be set apart for this role. We see that. And so now he's going to challenge Timothy. Like I said, he's at the end of his letter, and it's his last opportunity in his letter to speak into Timothy's personal life and to challenge him in how he's going to live and how he's going to lead and how he's going to stand firm and love people. And and all of these things are just so important. And so that kind of leads me, because Timothy's going to have to make some choices. I mean, can you imagine for a minute, Timothy's a young 25, 26, we're just guessing, 
in a, in a new Christian, the gospel has been here. Jesus has died and resurrected. There's this pagan community. There's this Greek and Roman world that he's living in. There's, a, there's Jews that are very staunch Jews still kind of stuck in the law and believing that. And this new thing has happened. And Paul is going to introduce the gospel. Some people have come to know Christ. There's a small group of people that believe this. And Paul says, now you're in charge of this. And there's older people that, that don't believe that. There's people that are coming in with false, false religions that they believe are true. There's people that come from, that are called Judaizers that, that don't like Paul. And so they're, they're hostile to the gospel. And this 20-some-year-old guy has been put in charge. And not only that, to, to put elders in place and to refute doctrine, false doctrine. I'm 57 and that scares me, right? I, I can only imagine a young, and you guys are all nice people, Right? Well, most of you. And, and uh, uh, all, all in respect to my mother, who, God love her soul, I love her very much, but she really struggled in her old age. She got dementia and then got Alzheimer's. And, um, and I say this when I was thinking about nice people. I was preaching one time on um, creation. And at that time, it was many, many years ago, and um, I was you know, fairly passionate about it. And, and my mom had never seen me like that. I don't think she'd ever been to a service. And she looked at my brother sitting here, not Jeff, my older brother, and said, who does he think he is up there? <laughs> and, uh, and maybe rightly so. And, and then later that afternoon, she was picking tomatoes at my, my brother's um, farm. And just out of nowhere, my brother said, she looked up and she pulled up a tomato and she said, if I'd have had this, I'd have thrown it at him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you remember that, don't you? So, no tomatoes, please, okay? Stones, fine, you'll kill me, but no tomatoes, no tomatoes. So here, this is, this is this relationship, though, between Paul and Timothy. There's this intimate relationship. He loves this young man, and yet he knows what is ahead for Timothy. It's going to be a life that's going to be challenging. He doesn't know, he doesn't even know his own fate at this particular point, Paul's own fate. And Paul thinks, thinks he probably may not see Timothy again because he may die. And so here's this situation. So what is the big idea of this, this text? This really this one verse that we're going to look at. It's following Christ requires making deliberate choices. Timothy was a believer, so this is not a, God has saved him by this point. He's, he's been born again. He's a believer. But now Paul is saying to follow, to be obedient Timothy, it's going to require you to make deliberate choices. Timothy, this is not something you can just passively live a Christian life. And I think that's a word for all of us. If you want to truly follow Christ, you cannot passively follow. It just doesn't flow over you. You have to make decisions. The Christian life is one of obedience. It's about one of following and dying to self. It's decisions that we make every day, sometimes multiple times a day. What do I do? In this situation, what do I do about this? I'm tempted this way. What do I do? And so here, we're, the verse that we're going to look at is verse 11. But as for you, now it's where it gets personal to Timothy. Because he's been talking about everyone else, the false teachers, the rich people, the people that are desiring to be rich. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and steadfastness, and gentleness. Wow, that's quite a list. So let's look what he first says there. He says, but as for you, O man of God, 
What, what is Paul doing here? He's reminding Timothy who he is. Do you ever sometimes need to be reminded who you are? Like, you're the daughter of the king. I, t- I tell ladies that all the time when they're struggling. I say, remember, you're the daughter of the king. You're a saint. You're saved by grace. You have eternal life. You're a witness for Jesus. Sometimes we need to remind him. And here he just says, Timothy, oh man of God. Like, you are a man of God. I've been with you. I know who you are. Remember who you are because the work ahead is going to be difficult, Timothy. It's going to be challenging to you. Now, I will tell you this term, oh man of God, Paul is putting him really, if you look in the Old Testament, um, in a pretty, um, he's honoring him pretty highly because this, this term, oh man of God, has been used of Moses, of Samuel, of David, of Elijah, Elisha. I mean, so I think Timothy probably understands the terminology here, what he's saying. He's saying, I feel this mantle on me. I feel this, this responsibility that Paul is now kind of reminding me of who I am. He looks back at these other men in, in the Old Testament and, and the lives that they lived and the sacrifices they made, and he, he begins to, I think, see what's coming for him. And then what does he say? He says, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. These are two very, very strong Greek verbs here. Flee and pursue. This is, the, this is really the, the crux of today's message. We have choices that we have to make. What are we going to flee? What are we going to pursue in our Christian walk? And, and we can break these down, all sorts of things. We're going to look at a few of them. The challenge is, is that really when we look at our culture, we look at people, especially outside the church, and unfortunately maybe even some of us in the church, we struggle with this, we're fleeing good doctrine and we're pursuing the world. And, what, and that, that's, a, that's been a problem ever since the beginning of time. We, we flee God, we flee, isn't that what... Adam and Eve did. They fleed when they sinned. They pursued their own wants by wanting to eat the fruit and be like God. This, this problem has been since the beginning of time. We, we, we flee God and we run to the world. And what he's reminding Timothy is, oh man of God, you must flee sin. You must flee all of these things that he's just got done talking about. All of the the slander and the dissension and all of these things. The the pursuit of of wealth. Not that it's wrong to be wealthy, but the desire to be wealthy is not right. And he's reminding Timothy, you must flee these things. And you must pursue these biblical truths of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and steadfastness, and gentleness. And so we're going to look at just a couple things here. And then we're going to dive into these, what we need to pursue. But here's the first thing I want to share with you. We need to flee any and all sinful behavior. It's the first really, this is what is called an imperative. Um, this is a command that Paul has given Timothy. It's his, his, his kind of his, his spiritual grandson. He's saying, Timothy, I'm basically commanding you. It's imperative that you flee these things. 
Now, these things, I think, predominantly are the things he's referenced above here in his earlier part of his letter. It's false teaching. And not that Timothy needs to flee because he's not teaching falsely, but those that are teaching falsely, those who are engaged in these unhealthy controversies, it says, and envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and and constant friction that comes with all that. He's telling Timothy, do not get bogged down in that. Flee that. Do not get into those conversations. Now, why is it Paul so adamant about Timothy fleeing these things? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. Our flesh can be enticed by this stuff. I mean, it's just we get enticed and we just get drawn in. And, 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 you know, whether it's wealth, the desire to have things. I I even noticed it yesterday. I was obviously I was thinking about the message and we went to see my granddaughter, uh, 10 years old and out on the other side of Eaton, um, play softball. And on the way, there was just beautiful drive out there, and it's you know wooded, and these nice big homes and beautiful homes, and I could feel even my own heart desiring that, and I wish I had that, and I, I felt I was envious, and I'm thinking this is exactly what he's talking about. Like I, I need to flee these things. Not that they're wrong. It's just that I don't need to want them, right? I should be content, like we talked about last week, and so we can be have to be so careful what we allow in. In the second letter that he writes to Timothy, he says this in chapter 2, verse 22. He says, so flee youthful passions. So we understand that Timothy is young here. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So notice that in both letters, he's really making sure that he speaks into Timothy's life and to tell him to flee these things and what to pursue. Are you encouraging your children, if you have children, what to flee and what to pursue? I mean, too, too many of us, probably because we, we want to be liked by our children, we, we, just, we just cave, we give here, we give there, and, and we say, well, that's okay. That's okay. Just, just be, be nice, but, you know, and we, we really, we need to draw that line tighter. Be loving, yes, but we need to tell them what to flee. They're looking for direction. The entire world and and social media and and everything on TV and the radio is telling them what to pursue. Amen? They are. And who is telling them what to flee? And and your words probably are going to go on counter to what the world in many cases is telling them to pursue. So you're the one, the first line of defense to tell them what to flee. Now, at some point, they get to make their own choices. They get to decide. And I'm not saying you don't love them when they decide poorly. I decide poorly, and my wife still loves me most days. And so it's, it's just, she doesn't like me, but she still loves me. And so, but that's the challenge for us. And this is really what's happening here in Timothy's life. He's being told what to flee and what to pursue. We see these, Paul talks about these things in several places in Scripture. I'm just going to reference a couple. 1 Corinthians six eighteen. We should what? Flee from sexual morality. That's a big one. That's a huge one. Once again, from the beginning of time, first 17 chapters of Genesis, almost every type of sexuality and sexual sin and sexual morality has been identified in the first 17 chapters of Genesis. That's been ongoing. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, flee from idolatry, worship of false things. That's really that's the best way to describe it. Worship of false things. It can be money. It can be relationships. It can be, you know, Careers, all those things. We need, to, we need to flee those things. All right, 
So I think you get the point that he's being told to flee. Second thing here it says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and steadfastness. So what's the point? We need to pursue Christ-like attributes. Paul is instructing Timothy and really commanding Timothy, Timothy, you must pursue these things. You must. You must. Christ-like attributes. And, and you know, the, the hard thing is, in our counseling um, ministry, we have a handout, and it's the overflow of the heart. And it's a diagram, and, and uh, I won't get all of these right, because it's been a little while since I've looked at it, but on one side, the overflow of the heart is trials, suffering, and temptation. What do we need to do to have those things in our life? Nothing, right? They come free. Trials, temptations, suffering, all of that is free, and it's constantly being poured into our heart. We're being tempted. We're suffering. We're, we're, all of these things are happening. There's trials in our life. On the other side of the, the page is Bible study, worship, accountability and fellowship. Do those come free? No. I mean, they're free, but they take effort. And that's really the challenge with, with pursuing, fleeing and pursuing is that the things that we should be fleeing are because they're coming at us all the time. And so we, we need to flee because it's not like he's saying, well, don't run to those things. No, they're already in your life. They're, they're surrounding you and, and every piece of literature and conversations and, and, and society, they're there. The temptations are all there. So he, thus he says, flee them, right? He doesn't say don't pursue them. He's fleeing because they're already existing in your life. However, the other things aren't naturally there. It takes an effort. You have to make deliberate choices of what to choose, what to follow, what to pursue. So here he gives these six major things that we could spend a, a message on each one of them, but we're just going to take a high-level view until we get to the last one. I'm going to spend some time on the last one. He says, pursue righteousness. Now, I want to define this a little bit. So this is not Christ's righteousness in the sense that what's been imputed to our life. In other words, what do I mean by that? Is that when God saves us and the Holy Spirit comes into us, imputed means he infuses a righteousness in us, gives us something that we did not get on our own. Christ got that from his obedience and dying on the cross, his resurrection. He lived a righteous life. He never sinned. He has a righteousness that none of us have. And we need that to be before God and to be a, a saint. And so God imputes that to us when we become a new creation in Christ. He gives that. These young boys that have made this profession, if that profession is true, and I have no reason to believe that's not true, Christ is, God has infused a righteousness, not their own, into their life. It's Christ that covers them now. Right? They're being sanctified. They've been justified by that righteousness. That's not the righteousness that he's talking about here. He's talking about a right way of living. Pursue a rightness towards God, a rightness towards humanity, towards other people. Live rightly, right? Live rightly, right? You can say, well, that honors God. Yes, it does. And I want to tear that apart just a little bit. So that's the first one. 
Do right by God and do right by man. The second term, very, very similar. It's kind of hard sometimes to parse these two apart. They're very similar. They overlap. Is he says, pursue godliness. Now, godliness is a little different. Godliness, I think maybe the best way to look at this is that it is the motive of the heart now. It is what we ultimately want. It's the desire of our heart. A godliness is that we desire to please him. We desire to have him glorified. We desire to follow and be obedient to him. That's a godliness. It's, it's something that's inside us that's, that's driving us to live rightly. To live rightly. Now, now I want to say you can't have godliness Without, I mean, you can't have righteousness without being godly the same way. In other words, th- these two things don't always coexist. So you, you can be righteous but not be godly. You cannot, but you can be godly and you, then you will be righteous. Now, where do we see that in Scripture? Where do we see that challenge that we piece that apart a little bit? Well, the first thing is we see in, in Matthew in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, really this is the Beatitudes. What does Jesus tell us that we, we should be wanting he says in Matthew chapter 5 or 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I love that way he puts that. I mean, aren't we driven by food? <laughs> like we, well, I am, okay. I am driven by food. I mean, I, at the softball game last night, man, I, I, sh- I don't, shouldn't be eating hot dogs. And man, I got one, and then I had to go get another one, and, and it just was, you know, I had some chocolate M&Ms, you know what I mean, peanut M&Ms. None of that is on my diet, right? But all I could sit there and watch four hours watching two softball games is the concession stand is right there, right? <laughs> I want to go get it, right? It's just, just, I'm driven by it. It's one of those things that it's a challenge for me, and I want it, right? It's probably why I have heart disease. And so this, this point is, is that we can... We can be godly, and it's going to bring right things, but we can live a righteousness that doesn't. But he's saying you, want, you should pursue it. You should, you should be hungry for it. And I would just ask you, are you hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Because that's really what Jesus, that's Jesus saying this. Are you hungry for it? Are you hungry to live right before him? That's, that's what I want. And I, I'm not always hungry for that. Obviously, because of idol worship and all these things, we, we get hungry for other things. But here in Matthew, later in the, the gospel here in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27 and 28, Jesus now parses this apart and says, you know, you can, you can have a righteousness, but it not be God-glorifying. Maybe you, maybe you know people like this. Verse 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you all, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He's obviously addressing the religious leaders of the time. He said, outwardly, Everybody looks at you and thinks, man, they, they're, they're doing right by God. And yet he says inwardly, you, you have no godliness. You, you have no desire. This is all selfish. This is all self-motivated. It, it has nothing to do with the desire to please the Lord. You're being legalistic. And so 
We want to pursue rightness, but at the same time, we need to have that pursuit be rooted in a heart of godliness, a, a way that we want these things. We, we want them because we know that it honors and glorifies God. Then he gets to two more, faith and love. Now, I will just say that we could spend a lot of time on these two, and we're, we're not going to do that. That's not a point of today's message. But, but faith and love are like two um, marks of the Christian faith, right? We, we know uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, right? The greatest of these is love. This, this whole point of faith and love is, is just intertwined in, in the Christian community, in the Christian faith. Now, unfortunately, you may know a lot of Christians and you say, but I don't see those people demonstrating faith and love very much, right? And that's the, that's the challenge, right? That's why Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you need to pursue these things because the world is gonna make you want to not pursue these things. It is gonna help you. It's gonna want you to be unloving. It's gonna give you every right that you can be unloving. The culture is gonna tell you that you, don't, you shouldn't trust God. He doesn't exist. Don't have faith in that. Don't believe in that. It's constant, remember, it's coming. No matter what you want to do, you can't hide from this unless you go and you live in a cabin someplace all by yourself and don't interact with society. Otherwise, it's coming at you. And so what would we say faith is? Just one small example, maybe or one small definition, a saving trust in God and the person and work of Christ. That's now, faith, we can have faith in things, but, but a Christian faith is it's a faith that God is able to save me, desires to save me, has done the work to save me, and I can trust it. I don't need to waver on it. I don't need to wonder if it's enough. No, Jesus' life and death and resurrection was enough. I can trust it. And faith is acting on that living in such a way, choosing to follow, choosing to be obedient because I know what he has said is true. Hebrews chapter 11, verse six says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. The author there in Hebrews is just saying to please God, you have to have faith. If you don't, you can't please him. You can't honor him because you're not trusting him. Then there's love. Love, maybe a good, simple, possibility way to describe this, a joy in and a commitment to someone, right? A joy in and a commitment to someone. Now, I will tell you, true love comes from God. So we could argue, can unbelievers love? Yes, but ultimately, what they don't understand is that the reason that they can love is because that love has been rooted in Christ, in God's love for us, right? Even though we reject that truth, many people, and they wouldn't look at it that way, that's where that's rooted at, in that love, in that commitment. First John says, you know, how do we... How do we know that God loved? Because he first loved us. He gave his life for us. He dies for us. This is what we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life, it says in 1 John, for us. That's what love is. Now, does that love, sometimes we think, well, love is a commitment. I will tell people that all the time. It is, I think, primarily it's a commitment, but it's, it's kind of like um, it's our walk. You know, one step is a commitment, but one step is a joy, a love, a feeling. Now, we have to be careful because the heart is, deceptive, and, and not every feeling is right, and that's why the commitment is the foundation of that 
walk, that love. And then once we have that faith and that commitment, we want joy. We see that all through Scripture. Paul has a joy in him. Love should be about joy. But it can't be separated from the commitment that we have to Christ. We see here in 1 Corinthians, now we talk about 13, chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, which I mentioned earlier. It says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, what, what, what many people then don't realize is because we have Bibles that are broke down in chapters and verses, um, there's some good Bibles out there that don't have any numbers in them, no chapters, it's just the letter. And I'll tell you, when you read it like that, it'll read differently. Because this is a letter that he's writing. He didn't stop and say, oh, here, next chapter. Because now let me read that again. Because what he says in chapter 6, verse 1, right after that, or chapter 14, verse 1, what does he say? Now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love is the next verse of the next chapter. He's saying the greatest of these is love, Timothy, and pursue it. Sometimes we, we stop there. We just say, in the greatest of these is love. And we say, oh, end, of, end of chapter, we're done. No, the, the important part of that passage, I really believe, is the, the command there or the imperative to say, pursue it. You need to pursue this. It's not enough that it's just the most wonderful thing. Without you pursuing it, it is not wonderful. In and of itself, it's wonderful, but it has no impact in your life. You must pursue it. You must pursue it. And this is what he's telling Timothy here. You need to pursue this. All right. Steadfastness and gentleness. Steadfastness and gentleness. Steadfastness really is this idea of patience and endurance. Um, it's this idea of kind of standing your ground, being patient in all things. Just you're steadfast. You're not wavering. Uh, many times in Scripture, it's this idea of um, you know, we're in a storm, we're tossed to and fro. And really this idea of steadfastness is just being planted, being patient, trusting, just being steadfast with what God has given us. Um, I think I shared this maybe last week. We went to the conference uh, at uh, Capitol Baptist Church in Cap uh, Washington, D.C., behind the Capitol. And, and one of the things that uh, one of the speakers said was, is that you need to remember, and he's speaking to a room full of pastors, he said, Jesus has already won. You're just responsibility to be faithful. And I know that, but that hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, it was a great ton of bricks. It was a good feeling. When he started there 29 years ago, he was the lead pastor. Um, and he said, when I got here, so the church was kind of in disarray, and they came to me, and they said, so what are you going to do to revitalize the church? He said, I'm going to preach the gospel. He's knowing me like, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to preach the gospel. He said, no, but you have to revitalize the church. He said, I'm going to. I'm going to preach the gospel. And then he didn't preach for like a month. He had other people preach. He just wanted to observe what was going on in the church. And his point was, he said, look, I'm here to be faithful. I don't save anybody. I, God saves people. <laughs> I preach the gospel. And God changes people with the preaching of his word, if he so desires. Not me. And that is a freeing thing for pastors. I, don't, I can't save you. I can't change you. I can share. I can preach. I can speak truth from Scripture. I can rightly try. I tell most people, I was talking to my neighbor the other day, and, and uh, I said something, and he, he said something about it. He said, you, we can't change people. I said, look, I can't even, I'm having trouble changing myself. You know what I mean? Let alone somebody else, right? And so this idea that steadfastness is this place that we can just kind of plant ourselves. 
maybe one way to look at this, and, and this is, I think, would apply to Timothy here, because what he's telling Timothy here is, Timothy, there's going to be a lot of pressure. There's going to be people pushing against you. There's going to be people that don't believe in what you're doing. There's going to be people that refute what you're saying, that don't believe in Jesus. There's going to be people that are going to try and come in and, and, and say they can be an elder or they can do this, and this is the way the church should be structured. And Timothy, you just need to plant your feet and be steadfast. You be patient with people, right? Be patient. James puts it this way, and I think this would be a good word for us and specifically, obviously, for Timothy. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It's counted all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You guys any having trials in your life? Right? Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, obviously, these trials that he's talking about here are trials because we're we're pursuing Christ. We're pursuing him. And he's saying, when you meet trials because you're pursuing him, because you're trying to live righteous in this world, it's okay. What would you expect from a world that is steeped in sin and rebellion and you're pursuing something that it does not agree with? He's just saying, it's okay. It's all right. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces this because we have to decide, are we going to move or are we going to stay? There's pressure. Do I stay or do I move with the culture? And boy, isn't that what's happening? Churches are getting pressure on things and they're moving. They're not steadfast because the, well, the majority of people think we ought to do this. The majority of people think this is ought to be the way it is. Uh, this is what they think about scripture. no. What does scripture say about itself? What does God say? And we're steadfast there. We're rooted. Well, yeah, but well, people will be leaving the church. Okay. I mean, like, I'm going to stand before the Lord and say, he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? Were you faithful to what I gave you? Yeah, no, Lord, because people are leaving and I, I didn't want to. That's not my call, right? That's not your call. You're just steadfast. Like you teach your children the ways of the Lord, and if you want them to buy, you pray for them, you, you labor, you pour out your heart over them, you, 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 know, you petition God for them. But at the end of the day, they have to make a decision how they're going to live their life. And you don't stop praying for them, you don't stop witnessing to them, you don't stop loving them, but you can't then say, well, okay, I agree with all of that. No, you would not be steadfast. And it says this, it says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we just stay rooted. All right, last one, gentleness, gentleness. We're gonna spend a little time here, gentleness. Um, an attitude of kindness and empathy towards people. That's one way of looking at it. Gentleness is an attitude or a, a, an empathy, a kindness towards people. Now, notice that he puts these two things side by side. Steadfastness and gentleness. Steadfastness says, I don't, I don't give. I don't move. But gentleness says, as I don't move, I still am loving. I'm not harsh. I'm not argumentative because people are going to disagree. I'm steadfast. And so he's reminding Timothy, Timothy, you, you need to be rooted. Stay strong. Don't move. Don't, don't be, go to and fro because where the world's going but as that happens, Timothy, you're going to feel 
There's going to be tension. There's going to be people that are going to want to argue with you. Notice what it said earlier, earlier in the chapter that I said. It says there's, there's going to be these things that are going to cause controversy, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. He's saying, no, the answer to all of that, even in your steadfastness, is to be loving, is to be kind. You say, well, yeah, but no, you can do that. Why? Because Jesus has already won, folks. You're not winning anything in the debate on Facebook. You can say all the tongue-in-cheek things and the real witty stuff. And Are you kind? Is, is that Jesus speaking to them through you, or is that just your wit, right? We, we want to be, you know, real quick. And look, I can do that, so I'm speaking from knowledge here, right? That's why I deleted my Facebook account, right? I don't, I don't want to see that. I don't, want to, I don't want to be involved in that. I'm fleeing social media. I've really put a push on trying to flee social media. I heard an incredible uh, art, uh, book, was reading a survey on a book or a review on a book the other day. And folks, you need to dive into what social media is doing to your children. It is horrific. I mean, all the numbers are out there. <laughs> all the numbers are out there. All the studies are, are showing it's horrible. It's, it's so horrible. The time, the, the, the lack of community that is causing, the, the depression, the suicide rate, it's all there. Are you monitoring your children? Are you fleeing? Are you helping them flee? Do you, do you take their phone at 10 o'clock at night and lock it, <laughs> and then they go to bed and they get it back at 8 o'clock in the morning? Oh, no, Raleigh, that would be just, you know, my God. You're their parent, right? I mean, do you check their... Do, do you check their stuff? Do you check their social media? Do you limit the amount of time? You know, on those phones, it tells you how long you're on there. You get a report all the time if you want it. Do you say, hey, you get this much time? I'm not saying they can't be on it. I'm saying they need help monitoring this. The world is sucking them. Their temptation, just like Eve and Adam, they wanted what they wanted. And the serpent was saying, oh, this is true, this is true. And that's what social media is doing. This is, come, come. You can have this. You can have this. And, and you're standing by and saying, yeah, let's just do what you want. Eight hours, nine hours a day on social media. It's changing the way they think, changing their values. I'm not, I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying it's not healthy at that level. Galatians chapter 5, he's referencing now here this gentleness and, and many of the things that he's talked about here in Galatians chapter 5, Paul refers as he's writing to the, the churches there in that area of the country about the fruits of the Spirit in 522 and 23. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. We talked about that. Joy, peace, patience. There's that steadfastness. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We can see gentleness, and this is why I want to spend a few minutes on this. We see gentleness all through the Scripture all through it. And we're going to kind of just move kind of quickly through some of these things. That, because most of the time, and we want to be careful here because I want to talk about gentleness, but remember, it's, it's, it's partnered with steadfastness. So we're unmovable in truth, but we're loving. Many of us err when we get truth and we get unkind because we think we're right and we're trying to win. We're going to crush the other person, right? At least that's my, that's my goal usually, right? I mean, just ask my wife. She's just, I can get that way. I want to debate you and crush you. 
right? And I, I'm, it's taken 20 years, but I'm working on that. As a pastor, I'm really working on that, right? I need to, we need to be gentle because that shows Christ. You don't need to win. You just need to speak truth in love, right? Truth in love. So here we go. Let's look at these. We're going to just kind of do a whirlwind tour here through Scripture. We must be gentle when helping an individual turn away from sin, right? When someone's in sin, whether it's a spouse, a friend, a child, we need to be gentle, not harsh. Where do we see this? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is, if anyone is caught in a transgression, sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness, right? Hard labor does not change the heart, right? Um, anger does not change the heart. We're just teaching them to be angry so they get what they want, right? I don't, it took me a while to realize that. Like, if I yell at my children to get them to do what they want, what I'm really teaching them is when they want something, they ought to yell at me, right? Because that's what you get what you want. You dominate. You have authority over it, and that's not the right way to do it. You have authority, but that authority should be wrapped in gentleness, Remember, Jesus has already won. Number two, we should be gentle when correcting false teaching. That's a tough one because we look at false teaching and we think, no, I need to shut it down. Yes, you do. You need to speak truth, but you need to do it gently. We see it in 2 Timothy, Paul's letter to him, 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. It says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Oh, man, that's hard for us. Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Once again, how we come across to people, right? We should have a confidence in the truth that we don't need to, to debate and quarrel. We don't need to. Look, I mean, back to the, the um, Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, he says, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, and and when I used to study that, it's this idea, we can be meek in the sense of not like cowering, but we can be gentle because Christ is one. We're not out there trying to win the war, it's one. We're just trying to be faithful and be a witness for what he's doing. Number three, we need to be gentle when sharing or defending our faith. So if someone's challenging you or in your faith, not that it's false teaching, but they're just, maybe they're not a believer and, and you're sharing your faith, you're defending your faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Right? What are the Christians, what should we be known for? Speaking truth and love. That's what we should be known for, right? Number four. For the purpose of maintaining unity in the church, right? I need to be gentle, and you need to be gentle, as the body of Christ, as we're the body, so that we can maintain unity. If we are all quarreling, there is no unity, right? You say, yeah, but I don't agree. I know you don't agree with everything that maybe we teach up here. You don't agree with everything the person sitting next to you. You may not agree with everything your spouse believes about every piece of doctrine. That's okay, right? I mean, if, if we have the gospel right, right? That's the most important thing. We're going to wrestle with some other things. And we, we want to wrestle with these things. We want to get them right. We want, to, we want to work towards truth, right? We always want to work towards the truth. Some things are just harder to see and harder to understand a little bit. Got to make sure the gospel's first and center. It's, it's an imperative. It, it has to be right, and we have to agree on that, obviously, to be 
To be a member of the church, we require you to, to share your testimony. We require you to, to write a testimony out and to sign a church covenant, to be baptized, because we need to see that you understand that truth. Beyond that, there are some things that we can have secondary issues about that we will wrestle with, and we want to seek truth and pray for truth, but we may not always have full agreement on. But we need to maintain unity. That does not mean we compromise truth for unity. In fact, as I mentioned last week, there are times that, that because we, we stand on something that we, we see is true in Scripture, not everyone will want to be a part of this body. And that's, I can't fix that. That's, that's just the way it is. Here we have a scripture in Ephesians where Paul talks about this. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He could be saying this to Timothy. In fact, he's writing to Ephesus here, but with all humility and gentleness, right? With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He's, he's talking to Ephesus here. He's saying, look, you guys aren't going to agree with everything. We're going we're gonna to learn. We're going to struggle to move. Some of us are going to be farther along in our understanding of certain things. And as we do this, we need to have humility. We don't have prou- proudness. We don't have pride in our life. We're a gentleness, a patience. We bear with one another like we... we we want to maintain unity, we bear with one another. We're not here to hurt each other. We're here to encourage one another. Last one. To be an elder, right? We must be gentle to be an elder, a qualified elder, an elder qualified, right? I've heard, some, I've heard some people over the last several years who have come from churches that elders were not gentle. Once again, Elders should be steadfast and doctrinally sound and hold to truths. And, and, and sometimes that seems unloving to certain people. And, and look, that's happened here. There's some people in our church over the years that, that probably feel that we have been unloving as elders because we haven't agreed with them. We haven't compromised on what we think is true about certain things or our practices about things. And I'm not saying we've never been unloving. I'm just saying, for the most part, I think the elders have been very loving, but we've been firm. But many people look at that firmness and that, that steadfastness as unloving. It's not unloving, right? When you tell your children they can't do something for their own good, is that loving or unloving? It's loving. But your child thinks that's unloving, right? They have a fit. They cry, they kick, they scream, they sneak out, right? I mean, they rebel against it, even though it was the most loving thing that you could do for them. And so we have that same challenge as a church. 1 Timothy 3.3 says, talking about, obviously, the qualifications of elders. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. All of those things Timothy is being told by Paul here. All right. Kind of wrap this up here. What are the reasons for our gentleness a little bit? What is the foundational? I've kind of talked about that. Christ has already won. But, but I want to give a, it's a big piece of scripture here, but I want to kind of close with this. Found in Titus, chapter 3, verse 2 through 7. Now, Titus is another young man that is kind of being taught to how to, to help steer the church and a young man in the church to continue to guide the, 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 the new church that um, has now sprung up. And here's what he says. 
It's a lot. So speak evil to no one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to slow and, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Why, right? Now, this is, this is the, the important, I want you to don't miss this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hatred of others by hating one another. That's been us. Even as a Christian, we struggle with some of that. But before we became to Christ, that was us. Paul is just saying that's who we are. So if that's who you've been and God has delivered you from that by his grace and his mercy, how now can you not be gentle with someone else? Because he's been gentle with you. Next verse. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We didn't do anything there, did we? The only thing we did was be sinful, right? And he saved us from ourselves. That is why we can be gentle. Because if he's done that for us, we pray that he'll do that for someone else. Notice, you're not doing that for anyone else. You're just speaking love and truth to somebody, and you're praying that God will do what he has done for you, that the grace that has been bestowed upon you lavishly will now be poured out to the person that you're speaking with. And your, his grace is not you debating to the death in the death match, right? That is not what God's plan is for them. So I want to leave you with two questions. Two questions. What do you need to flee? I'm serious about this. You, you, you need to make deliberate choices to continue to follow obediently Christ. So what do you need to flee? Because, look, you, you need to flee something. None, none of you are Jesus here this morning. There's things in your life that you need to flee. And you may say, well, if, but you may say, well it's not really a big deal. No, there's things that you need to flee. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's that simple. Maybe it's just your, your tongue and how, what you speak about people. Maybe it's your language. Maybe it is social media. Maybe you don't need to flee all of it, but you need to flee 80% of it. Maybe it's pornography. That hidden thing that no one knows. Maybe it's just your thought life. You need to flee from that. You need to, you need to take every thought captive and, and not do that. Maybe it's a prideful heart or a spirit of contention that you always like to stir the pot, right? Because you think that's your gift, right? Gets people talking, it fires things up. Okay, I need to flee that one. Um, false worship. Maybe you're, you're finding yourself worshiping things that you should not be worshiping. Maybe it's stuff, maybe it's relationships, maybe it's whatever it is. Maybe a relationship you need to flee. That's not healthy. You love the person, but it's not healthy. And, and you're dating someone. I'm speaking maybe the high school students or college students, maybe adults. You're dating someone. It's not healthy. They're not a believer. God says, you know, it's not what I want you. I don't want you equally yoked. But you're saying, but no, you need to flee that. You can still care for them, but you need to flee that. You need to separate yourself from that. 
you can still have a relationship, but you flee that, that intimate relationship. Maybe it's sexuality that's taking place in your life, but you're not married, and, and you, you cross the boundaries, and, and you're saying, I need to flee from that. I need to get away from that. That's, you know, my parents used to say, look, you're free to have somebody over, but only when we're here, a person opposite sex. Because they understand that the temptation exists when no one's around. And so one of the ways we flee from that is we're never alone with someone of the opposite sex that we're dating. That's just that's one way we flee from it. There's tools that we implement. So what do you need to flee? Maybe it's the desire to be rich. Look, if you have money this morning, that's okay. We're going to talk about that next week. And Praise God. I pray that you'll be faithful with it because the money can do great things. But that desire to be rich is the challenge. Second question, what do you need to start pursuing? What is it that you need to start pursuing? Remember the, the two sides of the worksheet? All these things come free. These things you pursue. Bible study. There was just women that came the other day for digging deeper here at the church, led by a couple ladies. I think Kendra go down. They're pursuing how to study the Bible more. That took effort. That took a, a part of their Saturday morning. There was women that came this morning to the Bible study that Michelle Hoffman, how to share your faith. They had to choose to give up their time, their morning to get up early to come do this. Maybe join a life group. So do you need to pursue a a more intimate relationship with Christ? Not just a surface relationship. Not just a, oh, I come and I come to church and, and yeah. No, pursue a prayer life of intimacy with Christ. Look, we're always pursuing that better prayer life. I'm pursuing that. A better knowledge of Scripture, a greater patience maybe, a stronger commitment to unashamedly hold doctrinal spiritual truths. Maybe you need to pursue that. You've just been kind of wishy-washy with people in your life because, well, you don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to lose your friend. Maybe you need to just be a little bit more steadfast. Maybe that's what you need to pursue. I don't know. Maybe a right, a godliness. You're pursuing a heart change. And that's what you're going to pray about, and you're pursuing that. So, today, when you leave here, I want you to find somebody, anybody that you're close with, and I want you to be willing to share those two things with someone. I'm not saying they need to hold you accountable. Maybe that is that relationship. But you need to give voice to these things. Because what? It's, you have to make deliberate choices to follow Christ and be faithful. And so share with somebody, here's what, here's what I need to flee. Would you pray for me? Here's what I need to pursue. Will you help encourage me in that endeavor? Maybe you've got a list of things. Don't overwhelm them, you know, but just share something. No one is Jesus here this morning. We should all, our work's in progress. We're being sanctified. And that sanctification process comes when the Spirit works in us and we put ourselves in the Scripture and we see what He says about who we are and we see what He wants for us and how we should live and we know we don't adhere to it. And so we need to say, okay, I need to flee from this and I need to go and pursue this. And so here we'll leave you with this passage. This is a little different, but this is the same concept that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. What we think. Don't. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We put off, we flee. We put on, we pursue. It's a decision that we make. 
as we walk with Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together this morning. Father, we come to you fully aware that we struggle in our sin. We understand that it is our nature, but Father, we praise you this morning that for born-again believers, those that you have saved by your mercy and your grace, you've given us the power through the Holy Spirit to say no to sin, to flee those things, and to pursue you and all the the goodness that you give us. But Father, these are choices as believers that we must make. We must decide what to put off. Maybe it's, as Paul says here, unholy speech. And we put on only what for is good for building each other up. Maybe we put off stealing, as Scripture says. But we put on working hard so that we can be generous towards others. Father, it is the life of the Christian to devote ourselves to this process for your glory. We want to be more like you. We Give us a heart of godliness so that we will have fruits of righteousness and faithfulness and gentleness and steadfastness in our life. Father, we don't need to win the battle, the war. You've already done that. Help us to be faithful as we live out our lives so that you can continue to transform hearts for your glory. Father, if there's someone here today that has not not been saved by your grace, Father, may you save them today. May you come into their heart and make them this new creation so that they will put off and they will flee from the old person and they will put on Christ and pursue you with a passion. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the fellowship that we get to have and the unity that we get to have and the gentleness of your love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.